Welcome to the Lifestyle First podcast, discussing lifestyle medicine and making self-care as easy as one, two, three. One question, two research reviews, and three actionable health tips, all centered around the Lifestyle First method, your blueprint for the 10 key roots of optimal health and happiness. And now your host, lifestyle medicine physician and coach, Dr. Alka Patel. Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 2. Today, we're continuing to take a deep dive with my co-authors into the book, A Prescription for Healthy Living. And the theme in the Lifestyle First Method we're exploring today is I, identity. Now, a woman's identity is often shaped by milestones in her life, such as pregnancy and menopause. And today we're exploring the question, how can lifestyle modifications at different life stages enhance a woman's health and her identity? Two references to support today's discussion are a 2009 research paper by Jolanda Boxmere and her team looking at folic acid and pregnancy and a 2014 research paper by Brianna Ruddick and her team looking at vitamin D and pregnancy. So let me welcome to the show today, Dr. Alexandra Kermak. Dr. Kermak, she is a National Institute of Health Research Clinical Lecturer from the University of Southampton. And she specializes in obstetrics and gynecology. And so her practice is very much embedded in helping to improve the health of women through their life course. She has done a PhD which uh, interestingly examined the effect of omega-3 and vitamin D on embryos, looking at how it changed those rapidly dividing cells in those first few days of life. And she is absolutely passionate about utilizing diet and exercise and lifestyle advice to improve the well-being of her patients through all stages, of course, in conjunction with conventional medicine as well. And Dr. Kermak, she has authored the chapter, Lifestyle Factors and Women's Health in the book, A Prescription for Healthy Living. So Alexandra, welcome. Really great to have you here today. We're exploring identity today, and we're looking at how lifestyle modifications at different life stages enhance a woman's health and her identity. And I guess, you know, as women, we do go through so many physiological life stages, don't we? And for you, I mean, that you're working very, very closely with women. So I guess my first question to you would be, what have, what have you noticed about our identity as women and its connection to all those physiological and very natural changes that we go through in our life, whether it's that onset of periods in our teens or possible conception, motherhood for some women, and then menopause too later on. Do you think that our physiology affects our identity? Oh, Absolutely, 100%. I mean, so much of what happens to us physically um, and changes in hormones and um, if we're trying to get pregnant or whether we're going through the menopause, so much of that impacts on who we are and, and you know, gives us part of our identity as a girl, as a woman, as a mother, um, as a grandmother. And actually, those rapid changes in the hormones um, that, that often occur 
at, at certain points. So when you start your periods at menarche or, or, um, or when you go through the menopause or, or when you become pregnant, they, they impact on so much of your life. So they impact on your mood, they impact on um, the quality of your sleep, they impact on what, what you fancy to eat. Um, and that in turn then impacts on, on everything around you, doesn't it? It impacts on your relationships, um, and on how you interact with the world. And, and so absolutely that gives you one part of your identity and, um, and it's something that we need to, need to take into account when we're talking to these women and when we're, and when we're treating them. Um, and, and actually when something goes wrong in that, so when, when somebody can't conceive or um, when somebody goes through an early menopause, actually the effects on their identity can be can be absolutely, absolutely huge. Um, there's been one study that said that the psychological impacts of subfertility on a woman um, are similar to a cancer diagnosis. I mean, that's just massive, isn't it? So absolutely, all everything we go through impacts on our identity. And, and, and I just think it's really important that we bear that in mind. Yeah, I think you've hit on something really important there, haven't you, is it's, it's being able to express that identity and particularly in that world of fertility, which I know is your sort of area of expertise, it's, it's not an easy space to really vocalise the impact on you, the person. It becomes about process, doesn't it? You're going through so many processes when you're trying to conceive and receiving help to do that, that actually you don't allow yourself to to be part of that journey as you, the person. So um, yeah, I think that's uh, that's so true what you what you've just said. So fertility is an area of expertise for you, isn't it? Um, what have you noticed? Have you noticed that fertility concerns are becoming an increasing issue for couples? I mean, I'm certainly getting maybe a, a lot more consultations than I used to. I don't know. Is it about awareness or actually are the issues increasing? What, what's your experience been? So I think it's I think it's probably a multifactorial. I think it's probably both those things. I think people are talking about it much more now, which is fantastic because, you know, back when our mums became mums, people didn't talk about it. And so actually, if you were struggling to conceive then, then you just became a woman who who didn't have a child. And and and, and that was obviously awful, but you had to deal with your own grief by yourself. And now we've come so far in, in the medical world in, in helping people conceive that actually it's a much more talked about, um, talked about area, which is great. But it is really common. I mean, it's, it's somewhere between one in six and one in 10 couples. So, you know, we all know people. They're going to be our friends. They're going to be in our communities. Um, and actually, we do need to make sure that we're talking to them to, to allow them to, to either go down a, a path where they, they are seeking um, medical assistance to, to conceive or, or just to let them grieve uh, the fact that they perhaps won't become, become a mum. So I, I do think that's really important. And again, and again, all links in with their identity, doesn't it? Yeah, no, completely. So thinking then about lifestyle, you know, we do, as you say, we sort of do medicalize uh, fertility quite rapidly, don't we? I know we, we give a window, don't we? We say, look, you know, it's very natural for conception to take up to 12 months of, of having unprotected sex. And after that, we'll start the, start the cycle of, of, of finding out what else could be going on. So we do at a point in time, 
change what is natural to something that becomes more more medicalized but I really wanted to zone in on lifestyle modifications because there is so much more evidence isn't there about how we can actually enhance our chances of of conceiving without needing to medicalize it too early of course there are interventions and incredible interventions um, that we have available to us now but what about before that or even during that what is the what are those lifestyle factors that can really help improve those chances of conception i mean i think it's great if people once they decide that they want to try and conceive if they can start on that journey of making those changes and, and not get to the point where they've been trying for 12 months and then they think maybe there's something wrong, I need to make some changes. Because actually, we know that the healthier the mum, the healthier the baby. And so if we can make those lifestyle changes nice and early, then actually it can have a real impact on, on their offspring. Um, I've, I've read a really great study that showed that about three quarters of, of women trying to conceive have made at least one lifestyle modification. So that's absolutely fantastic. And that really means that women are taking on board that, you know, they can alter the, the course of their offspring's life before that offspring is even conceived. So, you know, that, that's just brilliant. Um, the biggest change that people are, are making is, is taking daily folic acid, which obviously we would strongly, strongly um, recommend. Um, there's very strong evidence um, from the Medical Research Council that shows that um, taking 400 micrograms of folic acid a day decreases your chance of having of your baby having a neural tube defect um, and that's a defect in the baby's brain or spine so it, it can be catastrophic in some cases um, so there are some subgroups that should take more than that um, for instance if you're on anti-epileptic medicines and things so um, it's important that if you're if you have any additional risk factors that you have a chat with your gp or your specialist before um, starting on on folic acid to make sure you're taking enough um, but otherwise it should be 400 micrograms. Now, um, in addition to, to preventing neural tube defects, folic acid has been shown to increase the chance of conception um, in couples undergoing fertility treatment. And, and they've shown that there's a threefold increase in biochemical pregnancy in, in women undergoing IVF, which again is, is, is huge. Now, you could argue that a biochemical pregnancy that what that means is that you have those pregnancy hormones there. It doesn't necessarily mean that it results in a live birth, but actually it increases your chances. You've got over one hurdle. So that's, so that's great. Um, so it's, it's really a double bonus. It's a, it's a no brainer. We should absolutely be encouraging women to, um, to take folic acid. Um, I, I mean, I've, I've done an audit, which did show that it's actually probably only about 71% of women are, and that's women who are undergoing fertility treatments. So we really, as healthcare professionals and as friends of people that might be undergoing fertility treatments, um, we just need to get that message out there that, that folic acid is so, so important. You're right, aren't you? I think folic acid has become increasingly known about during pregnancy and during those early weeks, but that's so interesting that you're actually 
saying it supports conception so actually getting pregnant so yes absolutely the earlier you know the moment you as a couple decide or choose to think about even starting a family that's the that's your go-to uh to really kind of triple double up uh double up your your opportunity um so that's uh, that's really important and you're right i mean look there's a lot more to getting pregnant than very simply sperm meeting egg isn't there there's psychological factors nutritional factors Folic acid is one supplement, but you know the supplement industry is just exploding at the moment, isn't it? And you know we know that supplements are no substitute for really good, wholesome eating, but they can certainly have a very, very specific and supportive role. So apart from folic acid, is there research that tells us about any other supplements in relation to consuming? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, there's a growing body of evidence that says that um, women who are trying to conceive and certainly those with a raised BMI, so a raised body mass index, so those who are overweight or obese, should take some vitamin D supplements. And that's partly to supplement the mum because we know that they become deplete as the, as the pregnancy goes on. It's partly because we know as a nation we're, we're pretty depleting in vitamin D generally. Unfortunately, if you look at the weather today, you'll understand why. Um, so, but there is also an effect on fertility. Um, and actually the paper was fascinating. So it was performed in egg donors and their recipients. And it demonstrated that it doesn't actually matter what the status of the, um, of the donor was. So it doesn't matter what is surrounding that egg but what matters is the status of the recipient. So the, the, the person donating the eggs could have very little vitamin D. As long as the person that's receiving those eggs has, um, has good levels of vitamin D, then their chance of conception was hugely higher. Um, so so that, that's really interesting. And that tells us that vitamin D probably pays a part in the receptivity of the lining of the womb which we don't really fully understand yet, but, but is an area of, of research that's growing really rapidly. Um, and will just be really interesting to see how that how it changes that lining of the womb and, and, and why. Gosh, vitamin D keeps popping up everywhere now, doesn't it? You know, it really has got so many effects and benefits that are seemingly, you know, certainly coming, coming through. I don't think this has become mainstream advice though certainly in general practice and, and, and GP land we're not saying take folic acid and vitamin D we're, we're not really embedding those conversations folic acid absolutely it's been embedded for a long time but this is really really interesting to start also to talk about vitamin D and vitamin D levels um, and um, and supplementation which again is you know easily available isn't it from from pharmacies in the same way as as folic acid is something that you can you can certainly buy um, and as you say we're not getting it necessarily in our food we're certainly not getting it enough through the sunshine um, either so um, that's a, that's a really good uh, good piece of advice other vitamins anything around DE others so there's less evidence for others. Um, there's been a systematic review that showed um, that vitamin C and E didn't really increase um, pregnancy rates in subfertile women. Um, I personally, during my PhD, looked at omega-3 um, and vitamin D. We did give 10 micrograms of vitamin D to, to the women and their partners um, who were undergoing IVF treatment. And what we looked at was we looked at 
whether the quality of their embryos was improved by those supplements. So we gave quite a lot of omega-3. We gave two grams a day, which is essentially the equivalent of you eating a portion of salmon a day. So not, not huge quantities, but equally most people don't eat a portion of salmon a day. So, um, so relatively high doses of, of, of supplements. And what we did was we looked down the microscope at, um, at the embryos and just looked at how those, those cells were dividing. Um, and what we found was that um, something called the CC4, which is the fourth cell cycle, which is how quickly that embryo divides from um, five to nine cells, actually increased in, in couples that were taking the omega-3. Now, I don't know why that happened, and that's obviously something I want to look into in the future. Um, and what I don't know is whether that is linked to improved pregnancy rates. So that's certainly a, a study that needs to be done to see whether, whether that improves pregnancy rates and whether that improves live birth. There have been studies that have said that this, the quickening of the CC4 does improve live birth rates, but it, what would be really nice is to supplement women with omega-3 and then say more of them, more of them got pregnant because then we can have a definitive answer as to, as to whether omega-3 is important. My gut says it is, um, but I, I don't have the evidence yet to back that up. Yeah, no, I, I'm feeling that as well. I kind of I want to say yes, but we 100% need a lot more information and, and research behind that before we start to make that become something that uh, that we start to advocate um, a lot more. But what about real food? I mean, is there is there a fertility diet? So if you had to put together real food that women should be eating to support fertility, what's your research evidence information telling you? What would that look like? So I mean my gut says that it would be healthy food that we, you know, we all know what we should be eating. I don't think we should be cutting out um, any big food groups. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of fatty diets out there now. Um, so I think we need to be very sensible about what we eat and, and sort of everything in moderation. Um, a Mediterranean diet, so one high in vegetable oils, fish, vegetables, legumes, lowing sort of carbohydrate rich snacks, um, that's been positively associated with um, an improvement in folate levels, vitamin B6 levels, um, and also a 40% increase in the probability of pregnancy. They were couples undergoing fertility treatments, but, but it still showed a difference. Now, part of the problem is those women um, were reporting what they eat. So it is it, that does make these studies slightly harder. Um, I mean, obviously, it it's very difficult to, to truly um, get a picture of exactly what someone's eating because they're all, all the studies are done retrospectively, but 40% but is a huge increase. So, you know, and that Mediterranean diet definitely has benefits and we know it has benefits for so many other areas of life as well. Um, another study looked at a fertility diet um, and they said more um, monounsaturated fats rather than trans fats, more vegetables rather than animal sources of protein, low glycemic carbohydrates. So that's your things like um, sweet potatoes, um, high fat dairy. Um, and then they also included a, a, a multivitamin um, and, and iron from, from plants and supplements. So, and that decreased their risk of ovulatory fertility disorders. So that's things like polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, so, there is some evidence out there, um, but to pinpoint exactly what a person should be eating is a, is a, is a very difficult thing to do. I mean, the, the message has to be 
um, eat lots of fresh fruit and vegetables, minimal processed foods, and that can only be a good thing for you and your offspring. 100%, absolutely. And often when I'm having these conversations about food um, with women, the next thing that comes up always is exercise. I get asked about that a lot as well. So we talked about supplements, we've talked about real wholesome food. What about exercise then? So preconception that I find is that women are quite worried about continuing perhaps high levels of exercise and wondering how that affects their chances of conceiving. And then also in those early stages of pregnancy, women are worried about risks to baby with continuing exercise uh, as well. Have you got specific advice here as well? So this is a, this is a bit of a tougher one. Um, physical activity is definitely important, um, but we would be saying perhaps don't have very excessive um, levels of activity. So for instance, elite athletes um, often have a, have a low body mass index and um, often have associated ovulatory disorders. Now, in the general population, I would say, you know, if you are a runner and you normally run 5K three times a week, then actually you're going to do yourself or your baby no harm whatsoever by continuing to do that. If you decide you want to conceive and suddenly start running marathons every day, then that probably isn't so good for you. So I think it's about being sensible, isn't it? And it's about um, continuing to do in a level of exercise that's appropriate for you, provided it's not nothing and provided it's not excessive. Yeah, and it is. It's just, it's tuning in, isn't it? Um, um, and certainly uh, there are uh, guidelines, aren't there? Exercise guidelines from Public Health England um, pregnancy as well. So um, I think that might be useful to share um, as well. So, um, so we've talked a lot, haven't we, about sort of that particular stage in our, in our identity cycle or in our life cycle, which is around conception and pregnancy and motherhood for, for those of us who choose to or can. What about the other two stages in our life cycle that we tend to identify with? So that's menarche, which is the start of periods at one end, and menopause, that's the end of periods, that's, that's at the other end. So what is your experience then of the influence of lifestyle at these two stages? So, I mean, these are definitely parts of our life that we really shape our identity aren't they I mean I can remember starting my periods um so you know that, that is a, a huge part of us um so absolutely that uh, our lifestyle can can influence this and uh, there's been some research that's demonstrated that um girls that have a higher fat intake are more likely to have accelerated menarche so um start their periods earlier and conversely those with the more Mediterranean style diet which keeps cropping up doesn't it um, and higher levels of physical activity are more likely to have a later menarche. Um, and that, that is important, that does matter, um, because there is a large body of evidence now that links early menarche to increased lifetime risk of breast cancer. Um, and that it, it's possible that that's due to the prolonged exposure of the estrogens. Um, and there's also some controversial evidence that links it to an increased risk of ovarian cancer. Now that's not so definite, um, and clearly, I'm not saying that, that people that um, have, an, uh, um, have an early menarche should worry about, about breast cancer and ovarian cancer. But actually, again, if, if we can help those teenagers be healthier and, and help them to have a better diet and help them to have um, appropriate levels of physical activity, then actually that's, that's only going to help them through their lives. So, um, 
so yeah so that stage is is definitely um really important and then again at the stage of menopause um more and more women seem to be coming to us and saying i don't want hrt please don't put me on hrt i, I don't know if you found that um so they're trying to manage it with their lifestyle and with and with diet um i think the most common and problematic symptom that i experience are, are vasomotor symptoms so hot flushes night sweats that that definitely seems to be what bothers women most um and studies have shown that those that have, um, have diets with a higher intake of vegetables and fruit um, and even a vegan diet um which clearly isn't for everybody but you know <laughs> um have less frequent um and less severe vasomotor symptoms um and they also are, have better control of their weight which um, again has been associated with the elimination of symptoms so i think it's all linked in isn't it it's, it's linked in with how we feel about ourselves um, and actually that links in with the symptoms that people that people have during the start of their periods pregnancy and and the end of periods I think menopause itself is probably a topic, a wonderful topic that we need to, to come back to and really explore in depth. I think it's it's very much about choice and whether we're talking about HRT or, or lifestyle or anything uh, anything else associated and identity and belonging. And, you know, a lot of things that I, I come across with women uh, going through the menopause are very much related to emotions, concentration, memory, and again, very much about identity um, as well. So maybe we'll have a, a much broader chat um, about that on a, on a future episode, Alexandria, because uh, there's a lot to talk about there. Um, but I guess just maybe then finally, just to broaden it out a little bit. I mean, we started at the beginning talking about our identity. And of course, there's no, so many facets that shape our identity as women, aren't there? It's our, our values and our beliefs. It's our experiences, society around us. Um, and we have today, haven't we, zoned in on that sort of reproductive cycle um, part of it, which is a part of our identity, uh, whatever chunk of it uh, it fulfills. So I guess I just wanted to probe a little bit into your own thoughts about these sort of biological rhythms that we have, our very natural biological rhythms, and how you feel those rhythms and our lifestyles and our identity are intertwined and connected. What are your thoughts? Well, as you've said, I mean, your womanhood or your um, reproductive lifespan is, is one face of, um, of your identity. And the fluctuations in hormones that come with that um, absolutely impact on who you are and on your lifestyle and, and then the converse is true so we you know by having a healthy diet by doing moderate levels of exercise um, by getting good quality sleep we can modify um, the effects that those hormones have and, and so we can change what we're identifying with and, and, and how we feel about our own identity um, I think it's really important to say that not all obsangaini problems can be treated with lifestyle but actually what we do know is that if we can get ourselves into the best possible place to be fitter um, and healthier then actually treatments that we do receive whether they're medical or surgical have have a much better chance of working um, and and we have a better chance of our identity not being defined by the health problem we have and i think that that's really important because I think often 
in such emotive subjects such as fertility that almost becomes our identity when when everything is focused on conceiving and actually if we can try to to look at other lifestyle aspects and and focus on other areas as, as difficult as that may be um, then then that may help us um, kind of pick apart um, the, 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 the intrinsic intertwining that occurs. Oh, fascinating, love that. I think you're completely spot on uh, with that is in terms of how our identity is shaped uh, by our physiology, but also, you know, vice versa. We can change our physiology by what we do through our lifestyles as well. So it's, you know, absolutely this sort of two-way street and that sense that, we have got choice and control and, and options and opportunity as well. Uh, so thank you so much. And now here is your lifestyle first prescription. Your three activating actions to take you from knowing to doing. I always love to take people from knowing to, to doing, from theory to, to practice. So what have you got today? Just three actions that our listeners can take today. Okay, so number one has got to be take folic acid. If you're trying to conceive, if you're thinking about conceiving, if you've even got a twinkle in your eye, then um, take folic acid. You should be taking 400 micrograms um, for the general population, possibly more if, you, if you're on some sorts of medication. So just, just check that. Um, and that's just so important. It prevents neural tube defects, as I've said, and it increases your chance of conceiving. So that's got to be number one. Um, number two is just to aim for a really healthy, balanced diet, um, more fruit and vegetables, less processed foods. And that that will stand you in good stead throughout your reproductive years. So whether that be the 13 year old who's listening, who's thinking I haven't started my periods yet, um, or whether that's the, the person that's um, go, starting to go through the menopause and is really bothered by the hot flushes, actually a Mediterranean um, diet is, is going to help you through those stages. Um, and thirdly, I think it's really important to say um, that for anybody thinking about conceiving or, or, or trying to conceive, um, we should give up smoking. It, it, smoking is so detrimental to both your fertility, your, your general health and well-being, and also to the health and well-being of any offspring. And, and I feel very strongly that that's a message that we that we need to get across to people. No, those are you know very very important points there, Alexandra. Thank you so much. I guess it's thinking about how do you go to doing these things. How do you give up processed foods? How do you give up smoking? And I think the first thing is the realization of how important it is, and then to start putting in very 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 simple changes that can get you to exactly where where you need to go. I think if we all just did one thing and deprocessed our food choices, that on its own would make such a huge difference, wouldn't it? Um, but it's uh, yeah, it's having the commitment to to really see that through. And I always say, you know, start small and just build. Don't give everything up and don't try and you know, change everything in one go. Just just set yourself where you need to be and take every step you need to to get there. Um, Absolutely. Often often we know what we should be doing. It's not always so easy to do it, is it? <laughs> Absolutely. So thank you so much, Alexandra. I'm, I'm sure people listening and watching may well want to get in touch with you or find out more about all the fascinating stuff that you're uh, that you're doing. Is there a place people can can find you or get in touch with you at all? Um, absolutely. So I'm on Twitter um, 
think it's at Alex Kermack, but um, we'll check that. <laughs> um, so, um, so yes, and I'm be more than happy for people to get in touch. Great, amazing. Thank you, Alexander, so much for joining me today. You really have given us some uh, amazing insights. And of course, there's even more information available in your book chapter, The Lifestyle Factors and Women's Health in a Prescription for Healthy Living. So uh, that's the place to go to to get even more uh, information and, and science-backed information as well. So thank you so much, Alexandra. Really lovely to speak to you today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. And before I bring today's episode to a close, a reminder that the doors to the Lifestyle First Academy are opening this month. It is the key training platform to help you discover, notice and activate who you are, what you want and where you are going so that you can create a happy, healthy lifestyle. And my flagship course, Start Now, Transform Your Lifestyle to Transform Your Life, launches on the 24th of January. So join now with a special discount code, JAN24. Just head over to my website, to the Academy page, and become a founder member to start your journey of transformation for 2021. The links are all in the description box. It is time to live with intention. And I would, of course, love you to subscribe to this channel. The links are just below. So just subscribe and share so that you too can help spread messages of health that matter which now leaves me to simply wish you a happy, healthy day. Thanks for joining us on the Lifestyle First podcast, making self-care as easy as one, two, three. Don't forget to subscribe and share, and we'd love it if you'd be kind enough to leave a review. To learn more or to arrange a consultation, please visit www.dralkapatel.com. See you next time.